right. Good morning, gang. Good to see you guys. Uh, so, uh, kids, if there's any kids in here with us that want to escape, you are welcome to do that now, heading out. Uh, so, preschool through like fifth grade for children's ministry, and then youth group, uh, junior high, senior high, if you guys want to head out this morning, I think you're heading out with Pastor Chris, or you're welcome to stay in here if you want. But um, we're going to be in Mark chapter 14 this morning in the middle section, and I always know when it's an important text that the enemy really doesn't want us looking at, because that's the morning all of our tech crashes. So we've had video problems today. I think this is a, a text that uh, Satan does not want out there, which just makes it more exciting, I think. So anyway, uh, if you don't have a Bible, you're going to need one this morning, and you can raise your hand, and we would love to bring you uh, a Bible that you can use to follow along with. You're welcome to follow along on your phone. Uh, as Pastor Jeff mentioned in announcements, the whole uh, idea of our sort of journey through the Bible approach this year is uh, just do your own thing. I mean, for the past number of years, each year we've gone through the Bible kind of corporately in different ways. We've read through the Bible in, in you know, a chronological approach. and We've listened through the Bible in a couple different ways. Um, and so our hope this year was just to present a number of different options and different ways that people like to go through the Bible and then just allow you to pick the one that, that you think is right for you for this year. And we do have some, if you are a, a you know want the actual Bible in your hand, we've got some of those Bibles out in the foyer that you can look at today that we can purchase at cost. I lost the little piece of paper I brought that tells me how much they cost. Anyway, they're going to be cheaper than they're going to be anywhere else. So if you take a look at them and want one, just scribble your name down and which one, and we'll get one ordered for you and have it for you um, by the first of the year. So we're going to kick this off, of course, on January 1st. So just encouraging everybody to, to, uh, to give it some thought now. Um, as he did say, uh, all of the links in the uh, e-bulletin on Wednesday will be live if you need to get the Dwell app or if you need the YouVersion uh, link and, and stuff like that. So, um, so and again, Pastor Jeff announced the exciting news about Pastor Chris and Heather, and I get to announce some exciting news about um, Mike and Raquel, a sweet couple from our church. Um, had their baby last night. So baby Eden was born last night at 11 p.m. And if you don't know who Mike and Raquel are, um, Raquel's the one that's been super really pregnant these last few weeks, and he, it's hard to, to miss her. So anyway, uh, we're excited for them and be praying for them. Um, one more quick note on the, on the foster care thing. Um, as a church, you know, uh, the hope is that we're going to, we have a team of people that are going to be a support for Pastor Chris and for Heather as they receive a placement. Um, and so uh, Diane Nelson has been approved actually uh, to be um, advocate for them and to help to kind of organize a team here. So um, she might be tackling you after service to see if you want to serve in that kind of a capacity. If you're interested in doing that and supporting them as they take a foster child, you know, hopefully in the, in the new year, uh, if not before, um, we would love to get a bunch of people involved in that. So with all of that said, let's pray and just ask the Lord to bless uh, our text, our time in the word today. So Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning. Lord, we thank you for this season, Lord, as we prepare to celebrate um, this most important event in human history, Lord, and we just look ahead, and I thank you for the wonderful time of worship, Lord, as we prepare our hearts, Lord, this whole month, Lord, as we just look ahead um, to the celebration of the birth of your Son. And so, Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have now, Lord, just the privilege that we have uh, each and every week to open your word together, Lord, and to have you teach us, Lord, and, and uh, reveal your heart to us. So we pray that you would do that even now, Lord, as we continue. And uh, just bless our time, Lord, in your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So, um, you know, as I said, picking up uh, this morning in Mark chapter 14, right around verse 12, with uh, Jesus now, as you know, just days away from the cross, and he is really soaking up these final moments with the disciples, you know, who would soon, 
as we know, they are about to become the apostles. And they are going to be these, these men who are going to now carry this gospel message out to the world and through whom the Lord would establish this entirely new organism within the world, which is the church. And this morning we're going to see in our text that Jesus is going to give something truly, truly wonderful to the church. So here as the, his death on the cross grows increasingly closer, Jesus is going to give us not a, a ritual, but a very simple, very powerful gift, a way that we can remember his work on our behalf. And, you know, you look around at so much of Christianity today, and it is full of rituals, right, from sacraments to ceremonial objects to different holy days and recitations and even these incantations and, you know, symbolic physical gestures and ceremonies and liturgies. You know, oftentimes it just looks like a bunch of confusing practices, sometimes even in languages that aren't understood by the worshipers, right? And the list just kind of goes on and on because unfortunately, even though oftentimes sincerely, people, we have this tendency to add ritual into religion as a way to try to more closely connect people to Jesus. And yet what it does instead is it actually eclipses that real intimate relationship that we're designed to have with Jesus, which is precisely why when you simply look at the scriptures, what you find is that there really are not actually many rituals at all that Jesus tells us that we're supposed to participate in as the church. In fact, there really are only two things that he told us that we're to do. Baptism is one of the things. And the other, which is the Lord's Supper or communion, as we call it, we're going to see in our text today, it's the first time that Jesus is going to institute this, um, this ritual, if you will, this way of remembering him. And we're also going to see how, if I think just taking a few minutes today in trying to really understand the significance of kind of this routine practice and really to look at what it pictures, my prayer is that it really will help to kind of breathe life and give us a sense of real refreshment in our relationship with him. So the, the title of the message today is A New Picture of Relationship that truly brings refreshment. And uh, if you remember from last week, I think it was a pretty searching section of scripture. We kind of compared and contrasted Mary's very high value of Jesus. Remember as she poured out that precious perfume and anointed Jesus ultimately for his burial, this extravagant, wonderful act of worship. And then we compared that at the end of that text uh, to Judas, right? His very low value of Jesus conspiring now with the religious leaders who offered, you know, he offered to betray Jesus to them for uh, only 30 pieces of silver, right? We pointed out that was the, the cost of a burial of the basest of slaves. And when we finished up in our text last time, in, in verse 11 of Mark 14, it says that from that time, Judas sought the opportunity to betray him. So now we pick up in verse 12. What we see now is that a new day has dawned, and now we are preparing for something new. It says in verse 12 that on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? Now, most Bible students believe that these events that are recorded for us here in our section of scripture today probably took place during the day on what we would call Thursday of the Passion Week. Although, admittedly, scholars have wrestled with the complicated issues of kind of this of a precise calendar chronology of this entire week. And the main complicating issue is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all present this meal that Jesus is going to have here with his disciples as the Passover meal. 
normally, you know, eaten with lamb, which was sacrificed, though, on the day of the Passover with this great ceremony at the temple. And yet John very seems, uh, seems to very clearly indicate that this meal that they're having took place before the actual Passover. John says that Jesus was crucified on the Passover. And I, I think that the best way to understand this is to understand that Jesus and the disciples observed and ate this Passover meal on what we would call Thursday night, right? So after the sun had set on Thursday, which to the Jews is actually the beginning of what? It's the beginning of their Friday. So what that means is that Jesus ate the Passover as one historian put it, he ate it on the same day with the Jews, but not on the same hour. So it means that Jesus shared this Passover meal and he was crucified all on the day of the Passover, right? Thursday night into the daytime hours of Friday. And, and this seems to agree with and helps to harmonize all the different gospel accounts. Now I'm going to say this, there are many godly and wise students of the scripture who hold to a slightly different timeline for the week, and that's okay. But this is kind of the widely accepted understanding. And what I will say is this, is that there are those who have devoted their lives to the study of these exact questions. And it's easy to be pretty firmly convinced in any of a couple different directions. I'm inclined to agree with what this author wrote if, you know, regarding a very precise chronology. He said the discussions are irksome. I just like that word. They're irksome and the results are uncertain and they are apt to take the attention off of far more important matters. And the point here is that the Passover and the death of Jesus was close at hand. And that what he is about to do that night at this meal, what we would call the Last Supper, this is going to be nothing less than extraordinary. Remember we said that the Feast of Passover remembers that deliverance of Israel from Egypt, right? It was the central act of redemption in all of the Old Testament. And Jesus is now going to provide very soon on the cross He's going to provide this new center of redemption. And that is now to be remembered by a new ceremonial meal. Because, of course, Paul tells us that Jesus himself is the Passover lamb. Right? In 1 Corinthians 5, he says, For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. And so at this meal that they're about to have, in a way that's never been true before, the true Passover lamb was about to be present there at this Passover feast. Now, Luke tells us that it was actually Peter and John who Jesus sent to make all these preparations for this meal, including, as we read next, where the meal would be held. So look at verses 13 through 16. It says that he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water and follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared there make ready for us. And so his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said it to them. And they prepared the Passover. Now, the precise place of this Passover meal isn't actually included in any of the gospel accounts. Though we know it was there in the city of Jerusalem, Mark tells us here that it was in some sort of an upper room. Now, interestingly, church tradition tells us that this, in fact, was probably in the home of John Mark's mother. Right now, the other Gospels tell us, right, the, the man who, uh, you know, uh, we just see here that the man who Peter and John were supposed to be looking for would be carrying a water jug. Now, this is an important detail 
they would have not been able to miss this because in those days, men didn't carry water jugs. That was woman's work. Now, I don't write this stuff. I just report it, right? They would not be able to miss this man carrying this water jug through the city. And what I especially love here is that if indeed, you know, if it was in fact John Mark, right, the author of the Gospel of Mark, if his mother is the owner of this house where this most significant meal is going to take place, he doesn't make note of it. He simply remembered as being a friend of Jesus. And some have even speculated further that it may have actually been Mark himself who was this unnamed water-carrying man. Right? That he was one of the very people who was working here behind the scenes to make all of these necessary preparations so that Jesus could celebrate this important Passover meal with his disciples. And I think I've said this before, but I truly believe that there is a special place in heaven for the unnamed servant. And you might be one of those people. We have so many of them here at our church where no one applauds you, no one probably even acknowledges you, and you're simply serving behind the scenes, making things right for both Jesus and for his people to be able to enter into worship. And so be encouraged this morning because Jesus tells us that those who are serving secretly, right, maybe unnamed, maybe unknown, he told us very clearly in the Sermon on the Mount that those same people who are recording, uh, re recording, no, they're not recording, they're serving secretly that they're going to be rewarded openly. And I'm also just going to say this. I love these details because it surely seems like this is something that Jesus somehow had prearranged, right? Jesus somehow had reserved this room sometime in advance. I think another wonderful reminder of the fact that the closer we get to the cross, the more in control of the situation Jesus clearly is. But I think it also tells us, notice it was the servants it was the ones who were serving behind the scenes. They are usually the ones who are most aware of exactly what it is that the Lord Jesus is doing. So an application for each one of us, if you want to know what it is that Jesus is up to, start carrying water for him. Right? Start serving behind the scenes, even if it's not your kind of work, right? Jump in and start serving. Jesus had something new he was about to do here. And these servants who were preparing for it, they were the ones who were blessed because they were part of making it possible. And so here we are. We have all these preparations complete. And now we're going to start to look at this final Passover meal. In verse 17, it simply says that in the evening, he came with the twelve. So here we are now in the evening on Thursday, which again actually is the beginning of Friday for the Jews. And we have Jesus assembled here with all 12 of his disciples. And again, this is a pretty significant statement, especially since we remember from our text last time that, G that Judas has already put the wheels in motion and begun his betrayal. And Jesus absolutely knew this. And so it's especially amazing to consider, according to John's account of this same event, we know that John himself was seated and reclining to the left of Jesus, right, so that he could rest his head on the, on the chest of Jesus. And other details would seem to indicate for us that very likely it was Judas himself that was seated just to the right of Jesus, which of course is the place of greatest honor at a feast. And some have speculated this might be why Luke tells us that the disciples, even in the middle of this dinner, they get into one of these arguments about who it is that's greatest. And what's significant here is that it would have been Jesus himself as the host of this meal who would have placed Judas in that position of honor. And Jesus would have done it knowingly just hours before he knew he was about to betray him. 
And, you know, we look at the example of Jesus and sometimes, you know, we just imagine that people are against us when maybe they're even not. And it puts us in this very suspicious, kind of fearful, you know, very unpleasant place. But on this night, Jesus knew that Judas was against him. And yet all he does is respond in love and goodness. And in fact, we're going to see as we go through the story, that just seems to increase and become greater and greater. Look next, it says, uh, we're going to see that Jesus even will give Judas, I think, a chance to repent without letting the other disciples know what he knows is about to take place. Look at verse 18. It says, now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you that one of you who eats with me will betray me. So right here, right somewhere in the midst of this meal, Jesus makes this startling announcement, I know what one of you guys is up to. And you talk about a statement that would have reverberated through the room and changed the mood of this celebration meal in a moment. Right? I love what Charles Spurgeon wrote about this. He says, this was a most unpleasant thought to bring to a feast, and yet it was most appropriate to the Passover. For God's commandment to Moses concerning the first Passover lamb was that with bitter herbs they shall eat it. And so here, right, very well aware of this wicked plot that Judas had already entered into, I believe that Jesus here, by making this announcement to his men, he is giving Judas the space now to simply repent. If Judas's heart had just been open and if his conscience had been active, Jesus loved Judas. And this was this final opportunity that he's giving Judas to really look within and inside himself, which is exactly what we're going to see all of the other disciples are about to do next. I mean, you might as well have set off a stick of dynamite in the room. Because at this point, they may have started to understand that Jesus was about to be betrayed, but by one of them? Right? So Jesus is saying, look, it's not going to be Rome. It's not even going to be one of the religious leaders. It is going to be one of you 12 men that's going to betray me. And this impacted these guys in such a powerful way. Look what Mark says in verse 19. It says that they began to be sorrowful. And say to him, one by one, is it I? And another said, is it I? I mean, this news that one of them was about to betray him, I think it just immediately broke every one of their hearts. You know, the very thought that this would happen, that not only would one of them be capable of it, right, but one of them who had been given this incredible privilege and position that they had would then take that privileged position and in spite of all the revelation that they had received and in spite of that privilege that they would take that and then betray Jesus using it right so each one of them start to wonder and they start to worry if they might be the one and this is actually super encouraging Here's why. This is a great thing. I think this is a great verse because surprisingly, what the disciples don't do, which is what we would expect them to do, is start pointing to one another with accusations, right? That's what we would expect these guys to do. And it's not even like they all said, well, well we, it's the one with the black cape, right? We know it's Judas. We know we've always had a bad feeling about that guy. But they didn't do any of that. Instead, Mark says that one by one, instead of looking around and pointing fingers, they looked within and they wondered whether it would be them. And there are a lot of things that we have seen and pointed out, lots of things that the disciples did wrong, lots of times when we can look and we can see a very clear example of what we're not supposed to do, but this time I think they got it right. This is kind of one of these beautiful, uncharacteristic spirit of humility, right? Each acknowledging that indeed it might be them. 
right? They're filled with this sorrow and this healthy dose kind of of self-distrust. And I think this is kind of a new spiritual high point for each one of them. Because I think that every one of them knew deep down in his heart that he had it within his heart to potentially betray Jesus. And, and I think if we're honest, that the same is probably true in each one of our own hearts in our own lives. And we may want to think, oh, I would never do that, right? But the truth is, when push comes to shove, that we would all very likely betray him within the next five minutes if he didn't have his hand on us. There's a, a famous old saying that reverberates in my mind. It says that outside of Christ, I'm capable of anything. And it's one of the reasons why we need to keep ourselves as close to him as we possibly can. So here are the disciples each asking, you know, is it me? And Jesus next, he's going to, they're each asking individually, but watch the way he's going to answer them kind of collectively and in this very interesting way. Look at verses 20 and 21. It says, he answered and said to them, it is one of the 12 who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Now, <coughs> interestingly, Jesus didn't really answer their question directly because all of them probably had dipped with him, but he confirms that one of them is going to be his betrayer, right? It would be a, a trusted friend. And that this betrayal is going to have dreadful personal consequences for that man eternally. Right? Now the idea of this close friend, is, you know, Psalm 41 had said that even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And I love it because in John's account, he specifically tells us at this point that the disciples didn't really understand what Jesus was saying, except for one of them, of course. Judas knew exactly what Jesus was saying. And I believe that here's Jesus trying to point out to Judas that what he is about to do is going to have eternal consequences. And he's giving Judas yet another opportunity to repent. Because even though Judas had already taken the money from the priests to betray Jesus, the act itself had not fully been done yet. There was still time for Judas to change his mind. Now, for you theologians, verse 21 is a gold mine because Jesus kind of gives us this glimpse of both the human side and the divine side of this event, right? So from the divine point of view, the treachery of Judas was absolutely predicted in the scriptures. It was part of the plan of God, right? It says in verse 21 that the Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But from a human point of view, we see that Judas is going to be guilty of a terrible crime and he is going to be completely and personal responsible for what he did. So much so that Jesus pronounces this woe on him. So God didn't cause Judas to do what he did, but God used what he knew that Judas would do in order to accomplish his eternal purpose. So this is this very fine sort of a dynamic between divine sovereignty and human responsibility, and they're never in conflict. And even though we might not be able to understand now how, they always work together in order for God to fulfill his will. Here's what Matthew tells us next. He says that then Judas, who was betraying him, so Jesus just said, it's going to be one of you 12. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And he said to him, 
you have said it. Now, we said before, right, it was pretty noble for the other 11 disciples to ask this question, but it was nothing more, less than hypocrisy for Judas to ask it. He knew that he was guilty. He knew that he had already deliberately entered into this agreement, this covenant to do this wicked thing. Right? And yet he asks the question. It's just a, such an example of the way that sin can so harden our hearts and sear our conscience. And yet Jesus answers him in this amazing way, not to condemn him, but I think to call him back to repentance. Uh, to, what is with me this morning? Not to call him back to another sentence, but to call him back to what? Repentance. You guys can fill in the blanks for me, right? So if I get tripped up, you guys just throw in the word that works. Because I have to believe that what Jesus said to Judas here, he said not out of hate, right? Not with anger in his eyes, but with love. He said it because he loves Judas. And then John says that Jesus did something that showed Judas how much he loved him. Remember that in John's account, it says that at this point, Jesus offers Judas this morsel of bread that he had just dipped in the fresh herbs and oil. And it's yet one more thing that Jesus does to try to pierce the hardened heart of Judas because culturally, it was an act of friendship just to sit down at a meal and eat together, and yet it was a great honor, an honor reserved for only the most beloved guest to actually be handed a morsel of dipped bread by the host. And what a beautiful reminder here, even here literally on the eve of his crucifixion, Right here, it's a mark of this love of Jesus that's always trying to overcome evil with good. Just in the way, in the, these few verses, we see that Jesus is relentlessly pursuing Judas with this love and this grace and this mercy, just extending himself to him. And I point all of this out because there are times when we can each think, that we've just gone too far this time in our sin. This time somehow we have passed the point of no return. And yet what does Jesus do? He just continues to call us back. He continues to woo us with his love. He continues just extending that morsel of dipped bread to us so that we would just simply allow our hearts to be pierced by his love. It's never too late, right, just to, to relent and to repent and to turn back and to submit ourselves back to him. And yet for Judas, his heart was already hardened. And it's interesting because if you look in the different gospels, you see that, that Judas here doesn't call Jesus Lord the way that Matthew says all of the other disciples did. In Matthew 26, it says that each of them began to say, Lord, is it I? All except for Judas, who we see here calls him what? Calls him rabbi. And I think that that's an important detail because it confirms for us that Judas didn't see Jesus in that way. Maybe he did see him as a respected teacher, but he didn't see him as his Lord. Right? His head had been impacted by the things that Jesus had said, but his heart had never truly been touched by Jesus' love. And it was right here. It was right here after Judas took that morsel of bread that John tells us that Satan actually entered into Judas. It says that after the piece of bread, Satan entered him, and then Jesus said to him, what you do do quickly. And then John tells us he went out of the room into the night now to keep his promise that he'd made to deliver Jesus into the hands of the religious leaders. John 13:30 says that he went immediately out and it was night. And for Judas, sadly, it is still night. So here it was already in the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. And yet when Judas 
I think, so willingly rejected that final act of love and of favor that was represented in that morsel of dipped bread. It's like it broke some kind of a barrier within Judas. And at that point, Satan was able to enter him, and now he became solely the tool of the devil. Now, the next time we see Judas, it's going to be just hours from now when he brings those men to arrest Jesus in the garden. And then, at least in terms of Mark's account, he is going to slip silently out of the record entirely. With just these words that Jesus spoke here as kind of this epitaph of the life of Judas, where Jesus says, look back at verse 21, that it would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Now, don't misunderstand. Jesus isn't saying here that he wished Judas had never been born. But brokenheartedly, he was saying that it would have been better for Judas had he never been born. And the reality is that the same thing still holds true for any individual who rejects the love of Jesus Christ. The Bible is very clear that he who is not born again soon will wish that he'd never been born at all. Because hell is a very real and a very eternal place where Jesus himself said that what the worm does not die, the fire is not quenched. So Judas has now sealed his own fate, which to me, again, just makes the way that Jesus treats him here just that much more amazing. Right up until these final moments, I think that we see Jesus striving with Judas, showing him, you know, just it's showing him the, the tender, tenderest expressions of his love and of his mercy. And yet, ultimately, Judas was lost for this very, very same reason that millions are lost today, is that he didn't soften his heart, and he didn't repent of his sins, and he didn't believe on Jesus Christ. Now, at this point in time, Judas has just left, and you have to believe the rest of the remaining 11 were probably sitting there kind of in shock. So, so far, this Passover meal has already been like no other. But as we continue now on the balance of our text, we're going to see that it was now only after Judas had left the room that Jesus now is about to institute something new. Because now we're left with only those who believed in and who were devoted to him. Now Jesus gives us something unique for those who follow him. So this is something unique for the church. After observing what would be his last Passover, Jesus is now about to institute what we call the Lord's Supper. Keep in mind, you've already got both essential elements there on the table, right? You've got the bread, you've got the wine, but watch what Jesus is about to do because now he's going to clothe them with this new meaning, then he's going to use them to picture his coming death. So starting in verse 22, we see the first Lord's Supper celebration. It says that as we, they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them, and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they, drank, they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Now, up until now, right, in this whole Passover feast, everything would have been understood by the disciples. And yet this now was altogether new. Remember, Everything they ate at a Passover meal had a very symbolic meaning. They ate the same thing every year. There were these bitter herbs that recalled the, the bitterness of their slavery. There was this egg that was dipped in salt water to remember all of the tears they shed under Egypt's oppression. And the main course of the meal, of course, the Passover lamb. 
sacrificed, you know, for each household. It didn't symbolize anything in particular um, as it related to their agonies under Egypt, but this was that sin-bearing sacrifice that allowed for the judgment of God, the angel of God, to pass over that believing household. So remember, we've said that first Passover virtually created a new nation. You had this whole mob of, of slaves that was now freed from Egypt and came out as a new nation under God's leadership. And now this new Passover also is about to create a brand new people. Right? All of those who are united now in Jesus Christ and who remember him and who trust in him in his sacrifice. And so here, as Jesus uses these very familiar elements of the bread and the wine, he doesn't give the normal explanation of what they signified, but he radically now reinterprets them in himself. And so the focus no longer is on the suffering of Israel in Egypt, but the focus is now on this fulfillment of the entire Passover picture, right, which is the, the suffering of Jesus on their behalf. You see, the Passover was always intended to point ahead. Every Passover lamb pointed to who? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the Lord's Supper now announces that that great work has finally been accomplished. You've got this broken body of Jesus pictured by the bread, you know, his body given for the sins of the world. You've got the, the fruit of the vine picturing his blood shed for the remission of sins. You've got a brand new covenant, again sealed with blood, just like the old covenant was, but it's not the blood of rams and goats and sheep, right? One for each family sacrificed year after year, every year. But his blood, he says, is now going to be sufficient to provide forgiveness for all. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, we can each have this new covenantal relationship with him for anyone and everyone who desires to have it. Again, it was Spurgeon who said this, in that large word, many... Let us exceedingly rejoice. He says, Christ's blood was not shed for the handful of apostles alone. There were but 11 of them who really partook of the blood symbolized by the cup. And the Savior does not say, this is my blood which is shed for you, the favored 11, but this is my blood who is that is shed for many. So this new unconditional covenant of grace was going to be sealed by his precious blood shed for many that would be effective in removing the sins of any who would simply believe on him and enter into this new covenant by faith. And unlike the old covenant, this new covenant, right, this new life-giving relationship, this new covenant was based on this inner transformation, this transformation that would cleanse us from sin. And that was always what was pictured and what was predicted prophetically by all of the Old Testament prophets. This, in this new covenant, is this relationship that God has always intended to have with his chosen people. Through Jeremiah, this is what the Lord declared. He said that I will forgive your iniquity and your sin I will remember no more. So it's this transformation, right? This new covenant is this transformation that puts God's word, puts his will in our hearts, right? He says, I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. This is a transformation that's all about this new, close relationship of intimacy that we can have with God, where God said through Jeremiah again that I will be their God and they will be my people. Understand this, that in this new covenant, all of these wonderful spiritual blessings that Israel expected that God would grant exclusively to them during the last days, all of those same spiritual blessings are now available through the death of Jesus to any of us who believe. Now don't get confused. 
the physical bless, the blessings that God promised to Israel, those are still yet to be fulfilled. We say it every time. They will be fulfilled ultimately to Israel during the millennial kingdom in the future. But the point is that we can experience all of the spiritual blessings. We can enter into that same new covenant with him even now. All of this precious truth, it's applicable to us. It's available to us. And it's all pictured for us right in the bread and in the cup. This is how we remember all that Jesus did for us. You know, we eat the bread and we remember how he was broken and beaten with, you know, stripes for our redemption. We drink the cup. We remember that he gave his very blood, you know, his, his blood poured out on Calvary for us. So these are these beautiful symbols of these very powerful spiritual realities. And think about this just for a moment. But you realize that as he's giving them these symbols... Right, He says these are symbols of this new covenant, but they are also the realities of what he is about to endure the very next day. He says, this is, you know, that my body is going to be broken just like this bread is broken. That my blood is about to be spilled in the very same way that it is here in this cup that he held out to them in his hands. All of it, you know, as the horror of the cross was right there before him, and yet everything that he knew was coming was worth it to him because he knew that ultimately that's what would reconcile us back to the Father. That's what would put us in that place of intimacy, and that was what would allow us to have intimacy with him and to be able to sit and enjoy fellowship with him. And all of that represented in that little cup and that little bread. And make no mistake, you guys, what Jesus is doing here, he's not giving the Passover a new meaning, but what he's doing is he's actually giving it its highest meaning. He's just uncovering the meaning that was always meant to be there. Again, I think we said last week, right, the Passover feast represented the the redemption of the Jewish people from the physical bondage of Egypt. But here now is the Savior, right? Here's this redemption that saves us from a far worse bondage, and that's the bondage of sin over our lives. All based on this covenant uh, made on his blood. And when we partake of communion, this is what Jesus is trying to remind us of. It's a reminder of two things. And they're going to sound too simple when I tell you them. It's a reminder, first and foremost, number one, that we are in a covenant with God. That's the first thing that we should be reminded of each and every time we take communion. We are in a new covenantal relationship, each and every one of us, with the creator of the universe. And the second thing that we need to be reminded of is that that covenant that we have entered into is based on nothing less than the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And of course, when the Bible talks about the blood, it's talking about his life. Right? It says in, in Leviticus 17 that the life of the flesh is in the blood. And so here's this covenant, right? And in the Old Testament uh, and in this context, a covenant is simply an agreement. And the covenant was an agreement upon what that relationship would be based. And every time we take the Lord's Supper... It should be a reminder for us that our relationship with God is based on the sinless sacrifice of Jesus Christ. His death on the cross and that full satisfying payment for our sins, that's the basis of this new covenant. In other words, it's based 100% on grace. It's based entirely upon the grace of God. Right, God establishes this wonderful new covenant on the basis 
of the blood of Jesus on the basis of the work that Jesus did for us and not anything that we could have done. It's this mutually agreed upon that this relationship is not at all based on our works, but it's based on the work that Jesus did on our behalf. You know, when you hold that cup in your hand, what is it that's there in that cup? Is it a list of all your greatest accomplishments? Is it a list of your greatest attributes? Of the best things that you've done on your very best day? No, it's his blood that was shed for you on your very worst day. That's what's in that cup. And why would God need to make this relationship, right? Why does he need to make this new covenant so one-sided except that he knows us so very well. He knew that he had to deliver to us a finished salvation. He knew that there was nothing that we could or would be able to bring to the table. He had to deliver it to us completely finished, and that's why the very next day, at the end of the day, the very last words concerning Jesus on the cross before his death would be what? It is finished. He finished it right then and there. So our relationship with God, our reconciliation by God, our, our, our redemption, right, is all based entirely on what Jesus did and not based at all on anything that we could do. It's all by God's grace. And that all is communicated to us in the communion. It communicates that there's power in the blood of Jesus and behind that power is the grace of God. And yet so sadly, so many Christians live as if none of this ever happened. You become a Christian and then you live your life forgetting what the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross truly means practically in our lives, right? We live our lives as if there was no inner transformation, as if we haven't been cleansed from sin, as if we haven't had his word and his will implanted in our hearts. We live our lives as if we've not been brought into this close, intimate relationship with God. And so Jesus gives us this command He gives us this thing that we're supposed to do that reminds us on a regular basis of all of those realities. He says we're to take and we're to eat and we're to drink of this cup until he comes back for us. In verse 25, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So every time we take it, it reminds us to look ahead to that time when Jesus returns for us and there's going to be this future celebration of the Passover in heaven as all of his people are gathered to him. It's what Revelation chapter 19 calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this is the fulfillment in the Father's kingdom that Jesus is longing for. But until that date, he's given us this very special symbol or this ordinance or this observance to the church so that we can follow it as a reminder of everything he's done on our behalf because he knows that we would need to be reminded. Amen is right. (laughs) Right? He doesn't forget, we forget. We need to be reminded of all that Jesus did for us. And you know, when we take the Lord's Supper, it's actually like three things at once, right? It's a a retrospect, right? Because we're looking back to what Jesus did on the cross. It's meant to be an introspect, right? Where we ask God to reveal, you know, we look inside and we're asking God to reveal, is there any sin in my heart or in my life that's unworthy of that sacrifice that Jesus made for the forgiveness of my sins, right? So it's a retrospect, it's an introspect, but it's also a prospect, right? Where we're looking ahead. 
And it reminds us every time we do it that he is going to return for us. All three of these things, right? It's a retrospect, it's an introspect, and it's a prospect. And all of them are supposed to connect us back to him as we wait for him to return, right? As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Jesus knew he was about to go away. He didn't want what he did to be forgotten. So he institutes this supper that wherever and whenever we observe it, it would bring him and bring his love and bring his sacrifice vividly back to our minds. And bring it back in a fresh and a new and a powerful way each and every time. You know, the the love of Jesus is stronger than death, right? He doesn't need any reminders in order to remember us. But he knows that our love is very inconsistent at best. And that we will so very quickly forget. And he knew that we would need something that would revive our thoughts and that would quicken our hearts and that would just kind of stir up our love again for him. And that's what's intended to happen as we partake in communion. Amen, amen, amen. Right, as we take that, that cup and we, we take the bread. And just a quick side note. Notice that neither Jesus nor the text indicates in any way that anything special or anything mysterious happened at all to these two elements, as some would try to teach. Right? The the grape juice and the cracker do not become the actual blood and body through some mystical kind of an incantation of the mass. They simply remain the bread and the fruit of the vine. And they don't become some mystical means by which the church is dispensing grace in a mechanical kind of a ritualistic way. And unfortunately, again, as sincere as it may be, that teaching, rather than adding to, it actually robs these elements, I believe, of their real power. Because the real power is in us internalizing what they represent. The power behind these symbols. The power isn't necessarily in the the ritualistic taking of them. It's in us understanding in our hearts what they truly mean. That's where the, the profound significance is, is as we internalize it. Do you see how that's more effective than simply going through the act of doing it. So, you know, as a church collectively and as believers individually, far beyond any debate of of what the bread and what the cup actually are, what we need to be focused on is what Jesus told us to do with them, right? We need to take, we need to eat, we need to drink. Take, right? Because it's not going to be forced on anyone. We need to actually and actively receive it personally. Honestly, that's one of the reasons why we come forward every time we take communion. We we get the elements ourselves instead of having them passed up and down the rows because we want to be actively and personally participating in this process. Right? We need we need to eat, right? Because it's absolutely vital. Taking the taking of communion is absolutely vital for all of us. Without food and drink, we can't live, and without Jesus, we are all gonna perish. Right? And it's that picture again we've talked about of taking Jesus into our innermost being, right? He becomes something that we're digesting and he becomes part of us. It's this eating and drinking that we have to do for ourselves. So there has been nearly 2,000 years that have passed since this solemn night that we are looking at this morning. And you think over all of that time about the untold millions and millions of broken and grateful believers who have participated in these memorials in remembrance of Jesus and the way that it has proved to be a source of strength and a source of power and a source of refreshment during the times of greatest distress and triumph. 
Now, we're going to celebrate communion this morning, even though we just did it last week. We're going to do it again this morning. And I'm going to ask Fior to come back up. And as we celebrate the communion this morning, my prayer is that the Spirit really would help to speak to our hearts and that, that he would help to give these symbols of the bread and the cup just a sense of fresh and new significance for us. You know, as we look back on his sacrifice and we look forward to his return and we look within and we ask him to do this fresh work within us, right? This priceless reminder that when we were utterly lost and when we were utterly helpless, at that point, God's grace came and the Lord Jesus died. He did what we couldn't do to redeem us back to God. And he brought us into this new covenant based on the power of his own blood. And the final verse we see, after just considering these closing moments of this holy scene, it says this in verse 26, that when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now we sing all the time in church, right? But we don't often think about Jesus singing, but he did. And don't you wonder, like, what does Jesus' voice sound like when he sings? Right? What would it be like to just hear Jesus worshiping? And of course, one day we will hear his voice in heaven. But I think even now, what I want to leave us with is we may not know how he sang, but we probably do know what he sang. And it's incredible. Because a traditional Passover meal always ended with singing three psalms known as the Halal. Psalms 116, 117, and 118. And so as Fior just continues to minister and as we prepare to come forward and receive the elements, I just want to read portions of some of these psalms. And I want us to think about how these words of these psalms would have ministered to Jesus even as he sang them on this night, hours before his crucifixion. In Psalm 116, it says that the pains of death surround me and the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. And then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. And it says, you've delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. In verse 13, it continues, it says, I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. In Psalm 117, it starts out, it says, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. For his merciful kindness is great towards us. And the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Then in Psalm 8, 118, we read, it says, You pushed me violently that I may fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he's not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them, and I will praise the Lord. Then it says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in his eyes. And finally it says in verses 27 and 28 of Psalm 118, it says, God is the Lord and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God. I will exalt you. Incredible, no? That's the new covenant. And we just picture that right here as it says that Jesus rose and they went to go to Gethsemane, that these words from Psalm 118, they would have been right on his lips, but they would have been more so even on his heart. These words encouraging him even then 
of the way that God had promised that he would guide his Messiah through the distress and through the suffering and guide him right on to glory. And that's what we can be reminded of even as we take the cup this morning. The, the word is filled with promises that God will do that very same thing for us in our lives. And he'll do it through this powerful new covenant that's pictured for us in the communion. Amen? Amen. So Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word and we thank you for this precious gift, Lord, of your grace and this new covenant that you have provided for us, Lord. We thank you for the powerful blood of Jesus, Lord, on which this covenant is based. And we do pray, Lord, that as we take a few moments now this morning and we remember your sacrifice, Lord, we pray that you would stir our hearts up afresh and anew. Lord, help us to... Help us to understand the profound realities that are represented in these simple symbols, Lord. And we thank you. We pray that you would do that work in our hearts that only you can do, Lord. And we ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen.